I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Dan Wetzel would have thrived in any era of sports journalism. His wit, curious mind, sharp reporting skills, and engaging style of writing make him especially effective today. Wetzel has bridged the gap from print to digital better than any writer as a national columnist for Yahoo Sports. Few are as versatile. He's a must-read and a must-listen, too, as a podcaster. Wetzel's got game, and he's a fun guy to spend time with anywhere. Trust me, I know. We got this round. Hey, Dan, welcome to Press Box Access. How in the hell are you? I'm good, man. How you been? Ah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting along. I'm getting along. I used to type. Now I talk. <laughs> I hear this is going to take like an hour, which is the longest conversation we've ever had without alcohol. Well, I was just going to say, uh, I think I'm going to have to check your ID, Mr. Wetzel. Um, I think you might be too young to be on this tavern. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you've seen the guest list or not. <laughs> yeah, it was a little humbling. Uh, well, you know, we it's we serve oatmeal and we soak our feet about midway through the show. <laughs> and so if you need to take a break, uh, right. uh, we can do that. Take a nap. But yeah, yeah. I do think that uh, your birth certificate says that you're actually a little younger than me, but I, I know for a fact that... Kindred spirits. Yeah, well, you have quite a few miles on your tires, and I know that. <laughs> I know that because I put a few of those miles yeah. on there with you. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. I I seem to recall a pizza being taken into a bar at four in the morning in New York once. Um, sun coming up in New Orleans. Uh, well, you know. I I have no comment, but I'm not gonna. But sounds play. sounds right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Hey, play hard, work hard, right? That's right. That's the whole point. This is the whole point of the job. What do you else? You get in this job so you don't have to grow up. (laughs) So so you don't have to get a real job. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So why would I? Why would I do that? Why would I do anything else? Right. Well, let's see. Yahoo Sports national columnist for damn near 20 years. That's amazing. New York Times bestselling author, host of the Yahoo Sports College podcast. A must listen, I must say. I'm a very faithful listener. Great show with Pat Forty. Executive producer of docu-series, a screenwriter, a basketball writer's hall of fame. I mean, what, what is this? Is this the guy that I know? Oh, yeah, wait a minute. Wanted in 12 states. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, all, all joking aside, Dan, I'm really glad that you're with us because in my estimation, you're the best writer going, the columnist that I always make sure to read when there's a big story or even a story that's not on the beaten path. Um, certainly the most versatile guy. And I'm really glad you're joining us because your career spans the transition really from print to digital media. I've been wondering how you, <laughs> how have you been able to navigate going from the print world to the digital world so successfully? Well, um, I would say that uh, the basics, the basics that you learn as a as a reporter, if you want to call it an old school reporter, um, where you report out your stories, report out your columns, make calls you know, journalistically sound, different things like that uh, are still extremely relevant and, and always are going to help a, a, a column. 
that maybe aren't done as much. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know what everyone else does. Um, but then when you get to the internet, um, it's about topic and so I, I think, and I don't know, I'm assuming this, but if you're like a sports columnist in 1973, right. Or something like that, or 1980, mm-hmm. you know, they throw, uh, 500,000 newspapers under driveways or they get picked up at the subway and no one knows who the hell, what got read. Um, no one knows whether covering this made any sense. Nobody knows right. whether you wrote the right thing. And with the internet, you know, down to the, to the single person, now there's different placements and there's a lot of factors, but you have to go that route and at least understand you can't just write anything you want it has to be the topic how is your topic how are you differentiating yourself on the same topic and things like that right and that's where the the reporting and all the other stuff you can do yeah but there was a pivotal moment you once told me and that was february 13th 1994 it's john cheney and it's john calipari (laughs) it's umass and it's temple it's, well, it's Sunday afternoon. It's an Atlantic 10 basketball game. And something happened that day that you said, wait a minute, I think I might want to do this. Well, it was kind of a <laughs> what, joke. What, hap- yeah. what happened that day? Yeah, John Cheney tried to kill John Calipari. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> I was there. I will say, that didn't make me want to be a sports writer. I always joke that story. But, um, you know, I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like, this is great. If this happens every, every day, uh, we got something to write about. Um, yeah, well, let's let's set the scene on that one because you know I, I really do feel like that's a moment that happened. It it went viral the way you could go viral in those days. It wasn't there was no internet for the most part. There was no social media, but that thing became a huge story. Uh, I was covering Atlantic Ten basketball at the Cincinnati Post at the time, and I just remember that thing was like out of control. You're at the game for the Daily Collegian, and UMass wins by a point. And John Calipari comes in. Well, actually, Cheney came in first, right, to have his press conference? Is that right? And then he left, and things seemed normal? Yeah. So there's a, they did a, the Collegian, uh, years later, some, I can't remember who would, I apologize to whoever did it. Um, they did a, they did like an oral history and tried to pa- patch it back together, like forensic uh, science. But as I recall it, uh, well, I think, I think this is what, what it was, was, so Cheney would go right into the press conference and Cal Parry was going to go second. But Cheney comes in and he compliments the team and it was this great game and he thought the team UMass is going to be really good. And, you know, it was just a really good game. And he was very, very complimentary. John Cheney is a very interesting guy. I loved him. I got to know him, um, you know, to a degree later later on. Um, he even let the collegiate into one of his practices because he uh, – he even let me come to one of his practices like six in the morning. Yeah, I did um, that once too. Yeah, it's crazy. I think he wanted good press <laughs> in Amherst. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm not right. the worst guy in the world. But um, he, uh, he, I loved him. I love Cheney. But at the time, I didn't know him. Um, but he comes in, he compliments UMass, all this stuff. And at the time, Cal Parry's outside, like getting into it with the refs about some call that he thought wasn't fair in the game. And he won. <laughs> he had won the game. Right, so Cheney right. leaves. Cal comes in, and then someone tells Cheney that Cal Parry was after the refs after the game. If you ever really listen to it, Cheney makes reference to all of this, and uh, he just loses it um, and comes back in and uh, just starts 
yeah, you know, I mean, it was just phenomenal. It was just great. What were you thinking when he's yelling, I'm going to kill you? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't think there'd be a homicide. <laughs> uh, but if he had gotten his hands on him, so there are two players, Mike Williams and Derek Kellogg, were, were there also. And they had a little side table. They were sitting there. And Cheney went up and tried to get a cow, and the players blocked him. The, today, he'd probably be fired because he, I, I think he put his hand around one of their necks. I mean, it was a... It took two college athletes who were like 20 years old and in prime physical condition to hold John Cheney back. Wow. Um, and he, they did. And, uh, but the whole thing goes down and he leaves. And I just, it was just like, what the hell just happened? Like, you couldn't even believe it just happened. And then it was just, a, we got one of the local TV stations to replay it. We're looking at it out in the hallway on like the camera. You could get the camera to replay it. Like we're looking yeah, right. into the little camera. Like the Zapruder film, right? Yeah. And we're like, what the hell? Like what, what got said? I mean, you're in there, you got tapes, but you can't hear everything because Cheney's yelling from the back of the room. And it was, it was a different era of time. So that like, there was no breaking in with the news. So until the six o'clock news in like Springfield or whoever was at the game, Springfield Mass TV or whatever, there would be no video that would be out there. There was literally like hours of like nothing. Right. And then until Sports Center went crazy with it at like 11 o'clock, uh, nowadays they'd break into whatever and say, this just happened that, you know, you could be watching whatever was going on. They would have, they would have cut to it, but there was none of that. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, uh, it was wild, and then they uh, then they had a return game down in Philly, which was great. Um, but it was, like anyway, week, it, was, it was like a week later, right? It was a couple weeks later. It was it was awesome. I mean, all those A ten teams were great back then. You had Cheney and and Mike Jarvis and Al Skinner and uh, Prosser and Gillen, and you know just so many good characters in the league. And they were right. all you know, and Cal Parry, you know, he loved it. He got more attention out of it. Right. Uh, him and Cheney came friends. Like I said, Cheney just loses his mind every once in a while, but God bless that guy. <laughs> yeah, God rest his soul. Yeah. Well, that was quite an introduction to college basketball. So you wanted to, to find out more about college basketball. You like the sport. You, you start working for uh, the Basketball Times. You put on that miner's hat, and you go down that sh mine shaft of college basketball. What did you start to find? Well, I mean, it's just phenomenal business, especially back then when it was more popular. I mean, the characters of the coaches, the recruiting is the lifeblood of the sport, and and there's virtually no rules. Or there are rules, but half the people aren't, if, if, if half, aren't obeying them. So there's all this, like, suspicion and cheating and uh, just, uh, you name it. It's, it's, it's It was a great, great sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, you I mean, everyone knows what co college recruiting is, but if you if you really get intricate with the coaches, they're just dying over this stuff. Like, if I don't get <laughs> yeah. this guy, if I get this guy, you know, have this recruitment go down, all the different stuff. So, um, and then they're just so they're unique. The campuses are unique. Um, the whole thing was was uh, was fun. So, and I always gravitated to the uh, to kind of the real characters. I, I was never a believer in this like white hat, black hat. Thing. I, I, I never, I always tried to cover that sport and all sports from the ground up rather than the top down. Right. Um, I was also young. So there was ways like, there was no way that I was just going to be like, I wasn't going to become close with like Dean Smith or something. I mean, it just wasn't happening, but I could know all the AAU coaches or I could know the assistants or I could know uh, the guys that the media was always bashing. Um, 
I right. just saw it. The whole thing. Once you once you get in to college athletics, and it's the same with football. I mean, when you know the seven on seven coaches or the AU coaches of the high school or prep schools or all this stuff, you learn real quick that there's not you know, CBS can paint this guy as the as the paragon of virtue, and a lot of media will go along with it. But the difference between one guy and the bottom guy is very, very slim. Right. And so it's all bull. It's all bullshit. And so um, I was always willing to kind of, and, and out of necessity, to write about uh, a lot of the controversial people and all that. And they were just colorful right. or interesting. It was one of the first people that you met that that you thought to yourself, now this guy's misunderstood. Uh, that's a good question. I don't always know if they're misunderstood. It would, or maybe misunderstood wouldn't be quite the word because they might be properly understood. It's just miscast. How about miscast, miscast? Is a little bit. Maybe the priorities are all wrong. I mean, I became uh, and still am very close with Sonny Vaccaro. And if you read stories about Sonny Vaccaro in the '90s or the early '90s or the '80s, there was a generation of of sports writer that you would have thought Sonny Vaccaro, the sneaker executive was, um, you know, was Satan because he was a, th the NCAA didn't like Sonny Vaccaro. He was a threat to their model. Right. And this is where you're getting the coverage top down. You get commissioners would bash guys like him. And, and Sonny uh, Vaccaro set the, set the table. He, he's the guy that signed Michael Jordan to Nike. I mean, signed Michael he, Jordan to Nike, signed Kobe Bryant to Adidas. Right. He was he was a um, which might have been even a bigger gamble. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and he was a proponent of everything you see now. Uh, and he was also just this, but he was an Italian guy, just in fit. He's from Pitts. Who is this guy? And he would always say, Stop taking my money if you hate me so much. I mean, he's just a and he was always pro athlete. And he'd say, Well, why why should I'm paying uh, this coach a million dollars a year to make a grown man wear a certain sneaker. Right. And that kid can't get a ham sandwich. It's absurd. Right. Yeah. It was absurd. Everything he said was, he'd point out, but at the time there was a massive media effort to protect the NCAA. And so if you, you know, and the, the words that would get used to describe sleazy and grime, I mean, they were very, you know, it's like, yeesh. Um, and the more you got to know Sonny and you knew how much he cared about people and the more stories you heard about, you know, I mean, I remember a guy, he got picked, he got picked second in the draft and there was a story. I remember this was, it was a little after this, but, uh, the NBA was expecting this guy to go come out and he didn't come out. And, uh, somebody called the kid. This was like a, you know, one of these street agents supposedly, uh, pulling kids out of college to go to the pros, God forbid. And he called, he said, why are you not putting your name in the draft? He says, my coach went through, um, you see, he said he talked to the NBA. He said, I wouldn't be a pick till late in the second round. He said, son, you're going top three. <laughs> and uh, everybody knows it. So he came out, got picked second and played in the NBA 15 years or something. But, you know, you start seeing those kind of stories from a different perspective. Right. And you go, this guy is freaking lying his ass off on this kid and his family 
And anything bad happens, only one good thing can happen here. And it didn't right. make in the Sweet 16 next year for Old State U. Right. And, uh, you know, and you start really seeing it all through the thing and the hypocrisy of it all and how crazy it is now. And you got to remember, like, this stuff was, I mean, this was non-negotiable stuff. You can't have a player make money. Like, what were these? They were mad when kids would leave it after their junior year. Right? Oh, yeah. You got to right. show commitment. Right. Oh, it wasn't that long ago. No. 25 years, maybe. So, yeah, well, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you know, a guy like that, you start to really get to know, and you're like, well, how's he, how's he hurting them? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of them, the financial planners or the the, the, the the AAU coaches. You know, they're all terrible people, every one of them. Right. And, uh, oh, they're horrible. Well, you know, one thing is they're, most of them were from the city. Most of them uh, are, are African-American. So it's like you can't coach your own kids. Um they were all terrible, and some of them were. I mean, there's there's no question. Some of them did did some things. But I used to say, uh, you take like, uh, let's say we're into boxing, okay? Right. You're down in Columbus, right? So you'd say you start a boxing program in Columbus, and through the years, you send, you know, every other year, you get a guy to go pro, and he turns out pretty good. And you've developed this thing and taken the youth. Of, of Columbus, and you got a hundred kids in there boxing. They're staying off the streets. They're learning whatever they're doing, getting exercise. And right. every two years, one goes on to be successful. And let's say of those guys that get successful, some of them keep you on to be their their manager, the corner man. You make some money off of that and all that. The city of Columbus and the state of Ohio would build a freaking statue for you. Oh, exactly right in Columbus for helping out the youth of Columbus and being this pillar of the community and and, and launching all these great careers. And in col because college sports is involved, if you didn't send your kids to Ohio State, you're a scumbag. Because you said, you know what? This kid is going to go to Michigan State, <laughs> or this kid's going to just go pro, or this kid, maybe it'd be better if he goes and plays. He, he's kind of got a family life that's a little dicey, and it's not great for him to stick around. He needs to go out west, right? And none of those things are ever considered by the college fan or all that. Right. And so all of a sudden you're a scumbag and you make a little bit of money and you go, well, why is that? It's because right. we have this whole system set up that the, there's a rooting interest where if it was a different sport or, or you were doing, you're the piano teacher and all your kids are getting to, you know, becoming concert pianists and all this, you'd be a hero. So what's the difference? And, uh, you know, so a lot of it was, was learning that perspective on try to look at stories in a different, a different manner. Yeah, you and Don Yeager of Sports Illustrated at the time teamed up to write Soul Influence. Basketball, corporate greed, and the corruption of America's youth. Now we're talking. <laughs> Do you think you're, you're, you were kind of a bit of an outsider at Basketball Times? Did that help you come at it? Or, I mean, because if you're at a traditional media site, perhaps they're not asking you to do something like that. Is that kind of where your interest in, in, in the fact that you're coming at it from a different angle um, fueled some of that, or is it just general curiosity on your part? A little of both. Um, and again, like there are plenty of the AAU system was out, absolutely out of control in, in, in certain ways, and kids were used the wrong way. But it's not all of them, right? Same thing with the colleges or any, any other system of, of the world. Um, and, and Nike and Adidas got a lot better at I think handling things um, after that book, um, it got it got a lot more professional, um, which it needed to be. So now, now it's 
you know, it's good because you look at all these kids, they need, they need that. The Nike ZBYL, I mean, you still have, it's, it's always going to be crazy because there's money on the table, but um, yeah, probably. I mean, I was able to explore things that, that was really it. I also didn't have a lot to, I was covering AAU basketball because I thought it was interesting. So basketball times, let me uh, get into that. I didn't have old school editors that were like, no, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I didn't have to cover games. I mean, I used to always say the game's the easiest thing to cover. They got a big scoreboard. Middle of the stadium tells you what happened. They'll hand out a stat sheet, quote sheets. They they bring in the people. Like, that's easy reporting. That's not, it's not really, but it, I used to think that. Right. The hard part is walk into a thousand kid AAU tournament and go, what the hell's going on here? Right. Um, and, and figure out the personalities and all that. Um, so I don't know. It was, um, it was the opportunity to, to explore things like that um, kind of on my own with my own sensibilities maybe and my own thoughts on what what's a good story and to learn from it. You know, I, I, I went in with the same preconceived notions that I had read, right? So right. it took a while to where you slowly and you grow up, you just learn, right? And you, you hear more stories that you you come along and, and see this is maybe a little bit different. So no matter well, I think, what I was covering, I was always that kind of like, why, why is this happening? Right. I mean, natural storytelling is there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And that's kind of like you said, from the top down, you know, especially when it comes to college athletics, somebody has to play a role. But when you start digging around, if you're willing to play chess and not checkers, what you find is that contextually, <laughs> there's a lot more going on behind the scenes here. And things aren't just black and white. They are gray. And uh, I think you, you're, always, you're always ahead of the game that way, especially when it came to college basketball and, and now college football. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think when we did, too, like the, the uh, you know, why, why is there the BCS? Why does the BCS exist? And we dug through that. We did a lot of work on that. And I think we changed a lot of perspectives on what the bowl industry is and where the money's going and uh, different things. But if you just kind of look in a different manner, um, uh, it was there. So it, it, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that every, everything I've done is, is uh, you know, stands up to the test of time. I don't want to make it seem like oh, I had this all figured out, but there's certainly more than one side of the story and, just listening to NCAA presidents or commissioners, right. um, you know, uh, just isn't it? Uh, they they manufacture, um, they manufacture narrative. They manufacture, and we're doing it right now. Like right. the sky is falling. Right? They have to have a panic to to maintain. So everyone's all fired up by like NIL. Oh my God, we're gonna have the transfers. It's like what happened? Nothing happened. Relax. Like you guys are making this up, like you made up every other thing. Yeah, right. This this right. this crew. But we said seven on seven coaches don't have PR guys who set up press conferences. Right. You have to go find them and talk to them. Right. And build but the trust. Right. But if a commissioner of a league wants to sit down and 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 opine, and it's like, well, yeah, it's good for you, but what about the players? You know. Well, it's not all serious. You also found some funny stuff too, right? I mean, when you think about how wild it was, what, do you have a favorite recruiting story or something that, that you always turn well, to? Well, I mean, like, the, how did the that best happen? part of covering AAU ball was, I mean, first off, the, the, the coach, the AAU coaches, the prep school coaches, I mean, this regular, they're more, they're very 
they were like me. They're not, they're not important people. They're not, they're regular people. Right. And so we would just have, you know, eventually you get to know them and you just, you right. know, you're at, uh, some AAU tournament. I mean, we would, we'd go to the ABCD camp and in, in, uh, New Jersey and like sit around the back. There was like a pool at the hotel and sit around the back of the pool with like a couple of cases of beer at night and drink to like four in the morning with everybody. You know, like that's <laughs> research. My, my journalism strategy was often just find people who drank a lot and just hang out with them. And then eventually they became like really trusted sources. <laughs> um, Especially if you're buying. <laughs> yes, you know, anybody didn't have to buy. They just wanted the company. Uh, so that was probably not something they should teach in journalism school, but it worked for me. Um, yeah, so great characters, um, you know, all of that. I, that. I'll tell you my favorite recruiting story. It's, I don't, I, I don't know, it's kind of, it's like about four or five minutes long. I don't know. Well, let's go for it. Come on. All right. We're not going I, anywhere. I wasn't there. This is not involved me, but this is a Jerry Oh, Tar wait a minute. Wait no, it was, it was before my time, but it was a Jerry Tarkanian story. <laughs> all right, story. okay. Good. All right, let's hear it. Okay, Tark's, Tark, Tark's got a number of great ones. Um, so Tark, uh. Tark's recruiting this kid uh, from L.A. named Clifford Lee. He's about seven feet tall. Everyone's recruiting Clifford Lee. Tark's at UNLV. But then Cliff, uh, I can't remember what the initial charge was, but he gets arrested for something, and he gets put in the juvenile detention center in L.A., the uh, El Paso de Robles Juvenile Detention Center. Mm -hmm. So Tark says, uh, uh, you know, almost everyone bails on recruiting Clifford, but Tark's like, he's going to get out, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm not going to, this kid's seven feet tall. He can run, all this stuff. So I'm going to keep recruiting him, and he's going to get his GED inside the prison and the, the ju juvie. And so he goes down to the detention center, and, like, you know, they got, like, the glass up, and he's got the phone. And he's, you know, that's, like, that's the home visit. So you want to come to UNLV? Cliff's like, no one else is recruiting me at this point. Yeah, hell yeah. So yeah, Clifford. Just good to see somebody. Clifford, yes. <laughs> put some money on Put some, let me get some ho-hos on my books, you know, going to get some snacks. Uh, put some money on the book. Anyway, uh, Clifford Lee's going to go to UNLV, right? So this is a big score for Tark. He's going to get out this summer and he's going to get, he's got his GED, all this stuff. So this is a big win. So uh, UNLV at this time gets a new president of the uh, university. And this is back in the it's like late 70s or something. I don't know maybe early 80s. UNLV is a young school at that point. Um, needless to say, not attracting maybe the, the best students in America. Uh, and so he, the president comes up with this new strategy that if you are, uh, no matter where you went to high school, you could be in Vegas, you could be in Los Angeles, you could be small town Kansas, whatever high school in America you went to, if you were the valedictorian, you get free a free ride to UNLV. Oh, sounds good. America, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Maybe great. we'll get some smart kids in here. Okay. Yeah. So Tark's reading the paper and uh, with the guys in the office, and he says, hey, this is unbelievable. If we get a valedictorian, uh, you know, we can get a um, an extra scholarship. You get him on full academic ride, then you can recruit like a 14th dude, right? It's like a freebie. <laughs> so they all joke, and they're like, Tark, what the, you know, what the hell do you think's going on around? We ain't exactly... Uh, you know, getting a lot of valedictorians uh, to, in the UNLV recruiting club. Where are we going to find one of these? <laughs> so Tark goes, well, what about if, if Clifford Lee was the valedictorian of the GED program <laughs> at the El Paso de Robles ju Juvenile Detention Center? <laughs> so they all laugh. Like, Come on, man. Like, they don't have valedictorians of a GED program. So... Says, well, why not, right? So one of the assistants flies to L.A. They find the guy who's handing out the 
who's running the GED program. Go, they, they get him and they meet with him. And he says, you know, can we make Clifford Lee the valedictorian of the GED program? Guy's like, we don't have valedictorians. <laughs> yeah, right. the GED, it's not even how it works. There's not even a pass the test. There's not even a class. Like what? And the guy is, hey, what about, you know, maybe 500 bucks or something? Oh, yeah, sure. sure what the right. hell? Guy's the valedictorian yeah. of the GED. Yeah. I mean, we're not harming anybody, right? <laughs> so... So Clifford Lee gets named the valedictorian of the much to, his, much to his surprise. Much to his surprise and everyone else's. So Tark's <laughs> all excited. He's gonna get a now we can recruit this point guard from Phoenix we like too. We're gonna get an extra guy. This is genius, right? This is where Tark really would get in trouble with the NCA. He'd break rules that didn't exist because no one else <laughs> thought of the rule, right? Like <laughs> he wasn't really cheating. Right. It's just like, well, wait a minute. We didn't think we had to write that rule. All genius okay. is a bit twisted, right? Right, right. So he's, he's, he puts in the paperwork. Well, even at UNLV and whenever this was, like, what, like the academic people are like, wait a second. Okay, you cannot have a juvenile detention GED program. So they set up a hearing, and Tark is going to go and, and, uh, and make the case for Cliff uh, to 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 get the academic thing, they have a a, a, a hearing. He's going to He's like, I think I got it. I think I'm going to get. It. I think I got the votes. You know, he finds out who's on the thing and gets all those people. Right. So I said, all right, what happened? He says, ah, oh, weekend before the hearing. At this point, Cliff's out. He says, Cliff boosts a car in L.A. gets sent back to prison. The whole thing blows up on us. Hey there, and welcome to the. Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, Go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Well, you you wrote a great book with Tark, Running Rebel. I highly recommend it if you want want some great Tarkanian stories. 300 pages of that. Oh, my. So... How I wanted to ask you, how did you report, how much time did you spend with Jerry Tarkanian working on that book? And, and what was a day like? Uh, the the book took like five days to uh, report, four days maybe. So Tark's a great storyteller and very organized, very hardworking guy. He's a um, you know, son of immigrants. Um, and what a career. Think about this, 31 seasons, 778 and 202, 19 of, of those seasons at Jukos. UNLV. Where he, he was, and he was nobody, right, and he right. took over like Pasadena. He 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 was coaching JUCO in the '60s, and almost no African Americans could go to college. 
uh, like, you know, even the schools out West, they'd only take one or two guys and it would have to be a certain kid. He used to recruit, he'd go to like a playground in Watts and grab like three guys and put them on the Pasadena JC and go 33 and one, you know, like he just, so he, he, he always had that credibility. Um, yeah, so I waited until he retired. He always wanted to do it. Tark was such a uh, figure you had to write about. I couldn't get in business with him, although I, I did like him a lot. Um, but uh, I literally was in Vegas. I went to Vegas and sat there. He picked me up like 8 in the morning. We'd drive around his car, go get breakfast, I don't know, drive around some more, hang out. And he would just tell story after story after story after story. And after like four days, I had probably 90% of the book. Easy book to write. <laughs> He's a great storyteller. So <laughs> very colorful guy. It was just like, I'm like, I think I got enough. Like, yeah, please. I mean, how many more? I mean, we're going to have four, four books yeah, in the series like, enough, here. If you don't enough. I, got, sure. yeah. I mean, there was probably some didn't make it. He just had great stories. He's a great storyteller. He's a colorful guy. I mean, he was, he was awesome. But he was a guy that really, he was like vilified. And he's kind of what we were talking about, black hats and white hats. He was the guy that was the black hat, suing the NCA, fighting the NCA. But there were other guys like that too, I think. You know, and those were the guys that always made it fun if you're willing to go there with them, right? You just had to be able to ride with the black, so-called oh, black yeah. hats. They're, they're, they're a ton of fun. And yeah, their stories are, you know, I mean, that, that one's insane. But he would, you know, I mean, look, he was, he would talk about like rungs on the ladder and stuff. He'd say, we get, we get... You know, we get dumped on because my guys like uh, didn't graduate, and now he's like working as a pit boss at the casino or something like that, or floor boss and like that. But he goes, "You got to look like I wasn't." You know, that that kid's home life and where he came from. He climbed more rungs on the ladder. You know, and, and then you know, I'm not getting Grand Hill and Shane Battier out here. You know, and right. so it's like, right. yeah, Grant Hill is going to be really successful if he never basketball never existed. And nothing against Grant Hill; it's not his fault, or it's not Duke's fault. Um, but you know, it's sort of like yeah, everyone gives us crap, but look what we did do for him. Uh, and you know, some of that was disingenuous. Um, he mainly wanted to win. I'm always like, you guys are always trying to help out the underprivileged uh, when they're six six. No five foot six guys in the <laughs> in that exactly, high school, right? <laughs> I, guess, yeah. I guess no yeah. one who's no five seven slow kid needs any help. Uh, okay, I mean, yeah, they're full of crap too. But you, you know, it's it's just a different. Right. I'm here to, to mold men. Well, there's a lot of ways to do that other than being a college basketball coach, right? You know, I mean, one problem with college sports is they got up the the athletes. Uh, you know, it's like, or not the athletes, that's the, the Red Smith line, right? Don't got up the athletes. They got up the coaches. So your college coach is not just mm-hmm. a good winner, but he's like, oh, practically infallible, you know? Yeah, they have to have like, they, they're encased in values. Right. That was always and a I don't, I don't believe that, like anyone sits there, uh, you know, if you're a New England Patriot fan, you really think Bill Belichick's the greatest human on the face of the earth? Or you just think he's a hell of a damn coach and I'm glad we got right. him. These guys are, they're, they're regular people. And uh, they're trying to win. Yeah. And I, I get it. You have to portray yourself that way. It, it doesn't hurt. But right. if you're really that into helping people, you probably find a different route than just helping, uh, you know, 12 really tall guys. Yeah. It always amused me that the different narratives that surrounded what ultimately was coming down to wins and losses. Right. And you just see that so much in colleges where you don't see it in the pros. The pros, it's mercenary. It's pros. Yeah, or you're like Doc Rivers is a hell of a guy, you know. Monty Williams is a hell of a guy, but he had out coached on 
uh, game. You know, like, I mean, there's a lot of great people in pro bat. They act like they don't do this in pro basketball too. Like you can't have a, your only good relationships with your college coach. Like really, if you say you spent six, you know, you spend two years with one college coach, you spend six with Doc Rivers. You don't think he'd pick up anything? Yeah, you don't think Tim Duncan mm. and Popovich had a pretty good, uh, you know, relationship and learned from each other over the years just because they weren't in college <laughs> together? <laughs> so it's funny. So you, you you had all these different experiences in college uh, sports covering it, and then in two thousand and three, Yahoo Sports hires you as national columnist, and. Did you, when you think about your days, like you said, covering news as an intern in Chicago and Indianapolis, and then going into the belly of the beast and getting away from just the scoreboard, uh, how did that type of mindset inform the type of columnist you became at Yahoo? Well, at first it was like, we just need to get this going. I was the first sports writer, really the first journalist, they almost journalist they ever hired at Yahoo. I mean, we had some editors, the editor that hired me. Um, so we had to try to get the thing going because we were a search engine then. We we're a tech company. We we're not a content. There was no no one ever. <laughs> the word content didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, no one was like, oh, you're a content provider. Um, so it was a battle to build that business up. Um, and and it was like working for a startup that that happened to be worth like fifty billion dollars at the time. So it was great. But we could our division could get cut at any moment because it was just a total flyer. So it was a lot of work of just trying to. Uh, get readers who would come back, uh, make an impact, uh, build credibility with the leagues. Uh, you know, just it was that, it was probably a four or five year period of just um, a lot of growing that way. But the same thing, you couldn't cover everything. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, you had to either try to cover the big events, obviously, but you also had to try to do stuff that could make an impact away from the scoreboard. I mean, I, there was a, many years I was the only guy, right. only person. Right. So you just legitimately can't cover, you still can only cover so much. Um, so how do you do it? And that was, that was kind of the challenge there. But, it was, but part of that was like, how are we going to make this site matter? How are we going to have a brand? What are we going to do? And um, it, was a, it was a process, a lot of, a lot of learning, a lot of figuring it out. How's the internet work? I mean, it was brand new. You know, internet content was just brand new. Right. We weren't writing for it. It wasn't also on a newspaper. This was it. So I uh, learned a lot of lessons um, back then and, and figured a lot of stuff out. We do a ton of brainstorming and, you know, really looking at the data and how things work. Uh, um, the way emotions play into the internet. It's a very different, the internet's a very different um, uh, way of re. you know, it's a, it's a different beast. Uh, we used to talk about, you know, when you read a newspaper or a magazine at the time, you lean back in your chair and you read it. And when you are on the internet, you're leaning forward into your computer. Hmm. Um, and hmm. that, That's interesting. that little bit is a different, element you're not it's a, it's a, and and uh, you know whether it's more aggressive or more emotional or more connected to what you're reading um it's there what what is the i mean there was a million things we we started I, you know we did live blogs very very early if not you know one of the first to ever do it uh different type of trips uh, space didn't matter and there's so many different things that we learned and it's pretty funny because you still get people right. come in and are uh, they they still don't like that was twenty almost you know fifteen years ago and you'll get you'll hear you'll hear people talk about stuff and you're like yeah that doesn't work 
<laughs> I'll hear about this. Oh, they're going to do this. Like, that, that ain't going to work. <laughs> you, we tried that in like tried 2005. That. <laughs> that didn't. That didn't. That didn't pan out. Well, I think what you guys did, and what you particularly did, was you just, you know, the bedrock was always journalism. It was always willing to get your hands dirty, do the shoe leather reporting. And so, when I think about some of the work that you've done, a lot of it has involved scandals. You know, whether it's the NCA in Miami, number Connecticut, one sport in America is controversy. Right. 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 And you think about the sports and how much money's involved. And I always felt like that was just underplayed in general. And yet you were willing to go into that type of world again with your miners hat on. And let's go down and see what we can find. Um, what was it like working on some of those big scandal stories that you and the great Charles Robinson and some others were able to work on together? Well, when it came to college athletics, we were very into like exposing the whole system. Um, and whether that was showing how, showing a perspective of how, again, from the bottom up, um, what players and athletes, if parents think, all that. Like, you know, the big thing in college football right now is the transfer portal, right? It's horrible. Absolutely right. terrible chaos. Have you heard one player or his family complain? No. Yeah. Zero complaints from the parents. Not one parent thinks, please, could you please give us less rights? <laughs> please stop us from making money we don't want it like there's zero complaints but you would think because the coaches are all screaming and the ad's are screaming that this is the worst thing that's ever befallen and yet one side is perfectly great they're like this is great right. so like it's it's part of that it's showing how corrupt like the college football play the bcs was how much money they were just letting these bowl games steal from them and happily doing it because they were getting a kickback through a bowl bonus or something like that and it was showing that the ncaa's enforcement system is complete crap and there are no white hats and black hats so we sat there and said you know what we're going to investigate everybody Mm -hmm. There's nothing sacred. I don't have a favorite team. I went to UMass. Our football team's the worst team in the whole country in the basketball. I mean, it's irrelevant athletic program, right? Don't care. Um, we will we will go after any sacred cow. We don't care. Everyone right. says, ah, oh, you know, no one will investigate them. We will. And as you built that up, and so it wasn't really about did we catch this school doing this or that. And we shied away from the, like, you can always find some, like, well, this point guard at like a, you know, at a kind of high mid-major took a little thousand bucks on the side. Like, you can always bust those guys. That's easy. It's right. can you catch the coach orchestrating it? Can you catch the school orchestrating it? Like, there was one where, like, this guy, Will Lyles, who's run a seven-on-seven -seven program. He had, like, a, in Texas, he kind of had this, uh, you know, bogus uh, scouting service. They were paying, you had to buy, buy a scouting service, and Willie would help help you kind of recruit. Will Lyles is a great guy. Will Lyles does a ton of stuff for the kids in Houston. Um, and part of it is that. Like, well, the scandal came out. First, we, we do the scandal, and uh, or it starts breaking, and everyone's like, oh, Will Lyles is a scumbag. Actually, Will Lyles is a good guy. Like, he spent a lot of time with these, these players. But, like, the University of Oregon paid him with a university check, mm. right? Like, like, it's <laughs> yeah. like this, is, this is like, so we just went after it. Anyway, those were, they were intense. They were kind of fun. Um, but it wasn't the way people sometimes, most people, a lot of people got it, but it wasn't anything about like, let's, let's bust Miami for cheating. It's like, dude, they had a billion dollar Ponzi schemer 
uh, literally recruiting players for like everybody knew. Right. So don't sit there and tell me when you go, Oh my God, we're shocked or players can't get paid. Like, no, this is what was happening. You know it as well as everyone, everybody knows what's going on. Right. Admit it. And once you admit it, and once you start losing that, that, that cloak that, that the media often provided, that there were white hats and black hats and this guy's a scumbag and this guy isn't. It starts becoming harder to justify keeping all the money for yourself. And then something comes, becomes so big that it can't be ignored by anybody. And that's something like the Jerry Sandusky controversy at uh, Penn State, that scandal. Larry Nasser, you were there writing that every day in the court courtroom. Um, and then... And then outside of the college realm, you're covering something like Aaron Hernandez. And the idea that you are willing to go into the courtroom day after day after day, you just don't see a lot of that in sports media. And for, for a guy like Hernandez, you were there every day pretty much, right? In the At the trials? The trials, yeah, a lot right. of it. Yeah, right. I mean, I'd work with the, the lawyers and be like, you know, they they clue you in. When some, I'd be like, look, can you can you text me if we're getting a good guy tomorrow morning? I can fly in, but I can't be sitting here for three days doing cell phone. Like, like when they're doing like, we need to use the cell phone. You ever watch Dateline? Like, cell phone technology shows the guy was in the neighborhood. That takes like <laughs> days to go through. Like, it's yeah, the right, boringest. Right. And then this tower pinged for 14 seconds. And then this tower, it's like oh, the worst. I'm like, I can't be here for that. But if you're going to have, you know, we're bringing in this guy. So, yeah, I was there for, for a great deal of it. So, on that day in April of 2015... When the jury convicted yeah. Hernandez, the former New England tight end, the New England Patriots, of murder of Odin Lloyd, what was it like in that courtroom? Um, that was of um, I will say the most dramatic things I've ever been involved with are verdicts at murder trials. Um, I've covered a few murder trials and. When they bring the jury in, Foreman reads the thing, like it is, I mean, <laughs> it's it's incredible, right? You have unbelievable anguish and emotion in the room. Someone's been murdered. Mm-hmm. You have a family desperate for a yes, a guilty. You have another family desperate for a not guilty. Sometimes it's closer than you think. Um, there's so much pain um, because you can sit there and say, you know, this guy's a murderer. I hope he goes away for life. And that's fine. He, you know, he, he should, but he still has a mother or a brother or a friend. It's like, it's, it's, it's painful. It's unbelievably painful for them. And then you have the victim's families that just unbelievably. So the drama of that moment and the pain in those courtrooms is always just uh, over almost unbelievable. Um, even if you have no, connection and generally you've sat through so much you've gotten to know these people um you know one thing about covering a trial is very few people go to them Mm -hmm. um so if you're there for a week or let alone weeks you know they have a we're gonna take a 20 minute recess everyone steps outside like there's no one to talk to except the other people so you tend to get to meet everybody at least in some some manner right Uh, not everyone wants to talk or whatever but you know, I mean, it's just small talk, right? Well, you see the, see the game last night or, mm-hmm. you know, it was snowing on the way in, you make it all right. So you kind of have these connections with a lot of different people. And um, 
Yeah, so that one was that was amazing. Um, I remember the woman who delivered that one. She was uh, she was very small. She was uh, man. I don't I mean I don't know. She's in the jury box, but maybe five feet tall. Hmm. Um, I, I'm going to guess forty. She was, I think she was like an operations manager at you know some some manufacturing company, right? right. Anonymous. But this incredibly well-organized, and you, you see the jury, but they never speak. So you try to figure out who the jurors are. And this is the last thing I thought this woman would, like, I was like, wow, she's the, they voted her the foreman. Interesting, right? The hmm. foreperson. And she stood up there and delivered that guilty. And uh, it was like, it was amazing because they made them immediately sit down if you're watching the video because you're, you're, you're innocent till proven guilty. But once you're guilty, have a seat, you're, they, they, they lock you up. Mm -hmm. Like you're no longer, because in the courtroom, he's supposed to be, you know, he's in a suit. He's allowed to walk around, all that. He's innocent. But um, granted, there's a lot of cards. Uh, it was amazing drama. And that woman, um, I always thought that was the first person to ever really hold Aaron Hernandez accountable for his actions in his life. He'd always been able to skate by on everything he ever did, either mm -hmm. through his personality, his intelligence, or his football gifts. And then here was this woman just saying, you're out, flatten mm -hmm. him. Wow. wow. And then the wailing of crying from both sides. It's just awful. Those things are just awful. Right. Nasser was the worst, though. Nasser was the worst courtroom I've ever been in. Uh, I mean, he was guilty. He, he had, uh, he had uh, played to the plea deal, uh, pled guilty, 10 counts, uh, and he had already was going in for child porn. So, he he spared the trial, but then they brought in you know these they're they're like well, we're going to do this uh, uh the the little the district court the little district court in, in Lansing they had this uh, um, judge uh, Rosemarie Aquilina incredible incredible woman and so she says well, what we're going to do is um, anybody any victim who wants to speak at the sentencing can speak and if it takes weeks we're going to do weeks. Hmm. Anybody can show up. They can talk for as long as they want. They can talk for as little as they want. So he had so many victims, and uh, these, yeah, all these all these former uh, gymnasts, many, many gymnasts or athletes of some sort, one after right. another after another. These these uh, young women now who were girls, and honestly, uh, at least three, four, five times a day, you just choke up and want to cry. Mm. If not cry. I mean, the stories were horrible. And and you're like, I think in the end there were 170, but at one point there were going to be 88. And then they started inspiring the others. You know, everyone remembers uh, Allie Raceman. She wasn't even going to do it. Mm -hmm. But the, the stories we were writing out of the thing and the video that was coming out inspired the others to start coming forward. So they had 88. They ended up with like 170 or something. And every one of them deserved their own call, mm. right? But there, there's like 20 a day. And right. you're like, I can't write, I mean, just can't do it. But you just, I mean, the stories were so awful. That was the worst. Uh, but then there was like this empowering part to it. Mm -hmm. um, and this release almost that in some ways was better than, I don't know, a crazy scene. Crazy. You're also you're also in there as a father, you know, you have your own kids. Oh, yeah. So what what was the worst moment for you sitting there? watching that well i was talking to this one woman and her daughter 
this was after. Um, and the, the, the girl was uh, from, had uh, hurt her hip. And I don't even know if it was gymnastics, but whatever was the hip. And she was from the Detroit area. And the girl was 11. And she got a recommendation. And they said, hey, I can get you in with Larry Nasser up in Lansing. He's the Olympic gymnastics doctor. Right. So like a good parent. Wow, that's incredible. This would be, this would be, right? I mean, who wouldn't take that? Okay, we got literally the best of the best. Like, that's crazy. And uh, she drove her up and uh, Nasser uh, rapes her right in front of the woman. She doesn't even know what's going on. He's so, like, they're all in the room. Um, but she said to me, the girl was so, she goes, well, I go, how old was she at the time? He says, well, I think she was 11 or something. And uh, she goes, she sat, she still sat in the back seat. And I remember thinking as a parent, just like, oh my God, like mm. she can't, she's not old enough to sit in the front seat, Wow, you know? And I think I, I just started like, you just, I mean, the, the emotion, she was fine, but it was like, it's very rare when you're the one trying to keep it together, right? In an interview, mm-hmm. but you're just like, oh my God. Like, and she, the girl was sitting there, girl's done. Um, there was a long stretch where she had, uh, um, they didn't know what was wrong. Suicide, like they couldn't keep, they couldn't leave her alone. All knives out of the house, all drugs locked up, you know, all medication locked up. Literally tortured their life for for six years uh, before she finally admitted what had gone down. Right, and um, turned this whole family's life. On. Now she's uh, was heading off to. Uh, uh, well, she came. I mean, you know, she was heading off to Boston call. I don't want to reveal too much, you know, but um, right, right. I guess she did the interview. I don't remember, but um, she was doing much better. But, you know, that that whole scene. And then imagine like your whole family's just the whole entire family suffered mm-hmm. because they all had to spend their time trying. Like, why is my 12 year old trying to kill herself? And no right. one could figure it out. So awful right. stuff. Anyway, it's an uplifting but well, I think important. it's very important because I think what it shows again is we think of sports as just, oh, it's entertainment. And it is. It is. But it also reflects life. And if you're really going to be the type of columnist that you are, what sets you apart is that you're willing to go there. You're willing to go there in person. You're willing to go there, work sources, develop relationships, do the shoe leather reporting that I don't care if it was back in the print days or if it's now in the digital era. You got to go there. You got to do the reporting and you got to put some type of perspective into this that others aren't willing to do. And I think that's what sets you apart, Dan. Or or they're not allowed, right? I mean, I don't know. But one thing about that kind of a story, I remember I did a long podcast with Jim Rome. I did a number of Jim Rome um, on a radio off of Nasser, which was good. Because like, you're reaching the audience. And I used to say this line. I'm like, look, when you get together with your 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 friends, and if you're a dad, you don't sit around and go, hey... Uh, hear about that child molestation. It's not really a discussion that comes up when you're <laughs> having beers at uh, watching Monday Night Football. So it's, but as every dad and every parent wants to protect their kids. So to bring those kind of conversations into an audience that isn't normally right. going to hear it um, is particularly huge because you just, you just don't know. I mean, every parent, it's just one little thing. Like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye on my kid today a little bit more. You got to have a, a, yeah, you got to have bosses committed to it. And one thing about trials, they usually pay off and it's incredible readership. 
but there are days when, you know, nothing happens and you got to kind of find a story. But, um, so we've always done that, but we've always gotten, you know, true crime is obviously a huge thing. So we've always gotten terrific readership on that. And, um, but like Hernandez was weird. Like there was very few, there was, the coverage was not enormous, especially the second one. Um, and it's kind of, it was kind of wild that, um, and yeah, you don't get, you don't get many sports writers there, but I think that sports editor is just not, I don't know. I mean, to think that there was an interest in Aaron Hernandez, it's crazy. But I think what it is also a reflection of, again, oh, it's sports, it's, it's games, it's wins and losses, but no, no, it's, it's, it's so much more than that, you know? Or your sports writer can't handle it, but yeah. maybe they can. Right. You know, like, oh, we'll just have the court reporter handle it, um, or we won't bother with it. It's it, that guy's gone, and it's like, no, nah, this is you know, let, trust your trust the sports writer. They're they're good at telling stories. I mean, right. there's so many talented sports writers who go to a game and and turn a three two baseball game or a six one baseball game into something where it's readable. Um, you know, so give give them a chance. Well, I'm certainly glad you're still doing it for us, and you do it as well as anybody for Yahoo Sports. And I know you got a lot of sources to work and phones, phone calls to make, and and you're you're busy. You've been very gracious with your time, but the bar owner has turned up the lights, and I think I'm going to have to buy the last round. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time. And so, until we meet again, Mr. Wetzel, I want to thank you a lot for joining us on Press Box Access. Appreciate it, Todd. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.